I pray this finds you having a wonderful day as we get ready to look at another passage of Scripture uh, concerning uh, Jesus and uh, the centurion. Uh, I think this, again, is uh, just a great passage for us to look at the humanity that we see in Scripture and allow us to be able to see Scripture in a way that helps us to make it applicable, to help us to develop. And uh, so we'll be in Matthew chapter 8. We'll be starting in verse 5 and going down to verse 13. It says, Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. So let's stop with those two verses there, and let's set the scene here. First of all, we see that uh, as Jesus is coming into Capernaum, here is a centurion. Now, if you don't really know a whole lot about um, uh, what a centurion is or who he is, uh, he's a Roman officer who would have a uh, hundred soldiers, uh, hence the name centurion, century. He would have a hundred soldiers that he's in charge of. And so we also have to set the scene that Romans didn't look very highly upon Jesus and upon the Jews. Um, so this centurion, even coming to Jesus, would have been very odd. Uh, the Jews weren't, weren't viewed uh, well by the Romans. Uh, they, the Romans uh, definitely thought they were more superior. So for this Roman centurion to come to Jesus, and again, we've got to understand up to this point, it's it's not like Jesus is considered this big, you know, rock star up to this point. This is at the beginning of his ministry. Um, there's probably some word that's, that's spreading, um, but it's not like what we're going to see a little bit later on when, you know, the Pharisees are... Uh, trying to to have him killed, uh, his his notoriety is spreading, um, and and his name is known, you know, all over the area. Uh, it's not like he is uh, super popular right now. So this is very odd for this Roman centurion to be able to come to him now. Also, look at the language here. It's not that just this Roman centurion came to Jesus and was asking him uh, a question, but it says that he came to Jesus pleading with him. This is very significant, and not because of the idea of the Roman centurion thought he was better or anything of that nature. What I want us to understand here is Matthew is allowing us to see something so much more specific. We're seeing the condition of this man's heart, and I think that we don't need to, to underplay this word here. Because what we're finding is we could look at this and say, this man came pleading with Jesus, so he was on his knees and he was begging and he was crying. I don't think that's the situation here. I don't think that the word pleading here means that this guy was just coming and he was begging Jesus. I think the word pleading here really lays into the man's heart. Because here's why. What was the man pleading? See, a lot of times when we think of the word pleading, uh, we do think of begging. But look here, it says, he came pleading, saying... Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. So we see the condition of this man's heart with the word pleading. He is coming to Jesus on behalf of his servant. Now, what we see here, number one, I think we see four specific things here from this centurion and the word pleading. The first one is, he cares so much for his servant. Now, what we're seeing from this 
is that this kind of undermines what the Roman, uh, you know, mentality is. All right. And I think what we find from this is this hardcore soldier, we see the humanity behind it. And again, that's why I think it's so important for us to look at Scripture in depth like this. Because now we're seeing that it, it's not about your position. It's about the condition of the heart. And so this man is showing how much he genuinely cares for his servant. Number two, he's seeking out help and healing for his servant. He recognizes, notice what he says. He says, my servant's lying at home and paralyzed. So again, I, I want you to think about this. And it's, it's not looking at it from a cold-hearted standpoint. It's again looking at it from a humanistic standpoint. I'm pretty sure that if this centurion wanted to get a new, and, and a, a pardon for the phrase here, but a more usable servant, he could have. He didn't have to keep this guy who was laying at home paralyzed. He could have looked at it and said, okay, this servant is defective. I don't want him anymore. He's of no use. Just go ahead and let him be, you know, just throw him out and let him, you know, die. Don't worry about him and get me somebody that's usable. But what we see here is the condition of this man's heart. He genuinely cares for his servant. And so he recognizes his servant is unable to seek help himself. There's a, there's a word I want you to be able to, to, to put right in through here. Intercession. All right? Intercession. Because what this man is doing is he is going to Jesus on behalf of someone else. Here's the third thing. He's willing to break social and cultural customs for his servant. Again, let's go back. The Romans did not look highly upon the Jews. It's not like they, they saw the Jews as anything significant. And for this Roman to seek out Jesus to be able to heal is not something that the Roman would normally do. And you could almost say that he would be looked down upon for doing this. I'm sure that a lot of the people would have looked at him and said, you know, can, are you serious? You're going to go to, to the Jews? Why don't you just get rid of your servant? Why don't you just kind of cast him off and get you somebody new? Why, why lower yourself to go to the Jews? It would it'd be the same differences. And, and again, it's not saying this in a derogatory fashion, but to try to put it in an example, it would be someone like uh, Bill Gates lowering himself to go into a homeless community in order to be able to, you know, one of the richest men in the world, to go to a, a homeless community in order to be able to find some help. Um, that's, that's not what this Roman soldier would have normally done. But again, we're seeing the condition of the heart and why this is so important. And here's the fourth thing. Lowering himself and humbling himself as a Roman officer to ask for help. Again, it's not just that he went to Jesus for help, but he, he lowered himself in a cultural fashion. He lowered himself to go to Jesus. And by doing so, again, you're seeing that this man has a genuineness about him that is so different than what it would be normally you know, perceived at this period of time. And so what he's doing is his faith is what we're seeing here. He has a level of faith in his heart that Jesus is going to compliment here in just a little bit. This man has a genuine faith that is really unseen in the Romans at this period of time. I want you to hear what E.M. Bounds said. 
concerning this. Ian Bounds said, Obedience helps faith, and faith in turn helps obedience. And so what he's doing is this man understands, okay, and, and again, we have to read into this just a little bit. There has to have been something that's taken place for this Roman centurion to have heard about Jesus and to be able to seek Jesus out and come. So the Roman centurion has had to hear some type of healing. He's had to hear some type of ministry that's been done. He's had to hear, if you want to say this way, a rumor about Jesus because it's not like that this Roman centurion would have happened to have just sought Jesus out for the sake of seeking him out. So we don't know how he's heard about Jesus, but somehow he has. And he believes that Jesus has the capability to be able to take care of his servant. And we know that because he's showing this level of faith that he comes to Jesus. And he's making sure... uh, that he's saying, okay, I know you can heal him. And the reason why we're saying, he's, he's looking at it saying, I know you can heal him, is because he lays out the condition of his servant first. He lay, it, it's, it's not like one of those things to where he's coming to Jesus and he's trying to strike up a conversation. He immediately goes to the heart of the matter. And he's saying, my servant is lying at home paralyzed and dreadfully tormented, okay? What, what's the purpose of saying that your, your servant is paralyzed if you're not expecting some type of healing? See, what we have to do is we have to come in to our faith and we have to come into our prayer time um, with a level of um, expectation. And I think that one of the things that we don't do enough is that we don't, we don't pray boldly and we don't pray big. We pray not based on who our faith is in, which is God. We pray based on the level of our faith at the time. And so if we pray to the level of who our faith is in, then our prayers should be bold. They should be outlandish because our God is capable. Our God is able. Nothing is impossible with him. However, what we do is we pray on the level and the base of our faith, which means that many times, if my faith is weak, if my faith isn't where it needs to be, I don't pray above the level of my faith. And what this guy is doing is he's saying, I want who, who my faith is in is going to determine my prayer life. And see, that's how we should be. Who our faith is in is what should determine our prayer life, not our circumstances. And so what we're doing is we're praying... Um, we're praying under the level of the way we should pray because we're allowing our, our faith at the time to determine our prayers. Because many of us, you know, I'll just put myself in this situation. I don't come to God this boldly. I mean, this guy, he doesn't even, I mean, again, we're going off of the assumption here based on this conversation that this is the first words that this man has ever spoken to Jesus. So, I mean, this guy's just coming up to Jesus, and it's not like, hey, how you doing? Uh, I, I've heard about you, and, uh, you know, I, I would love to be able to uh, sit down and have a conversation with you. No, the first thing he does is saying, listen, Lord, notice his addressing to him. He gives him the adoration. He doesn't call him teacher. He doesn't call him rabbi. He doesn't call him prophet. He calls him Lord, which is... This Roman centurion is surrendering to the lordship of Jesus. He's saying, you are above me. 
which again is completely socially and cultural, uh, culturally out of the, the, the way. So his first words are, Lord, you're greater than me. I'm surrendered to you. And oh, by the way, my servant's lying at home paralyzed and dreadfully tormented. And you are the only one who can do this. How often do we pray so boldly that if Jesus didn't answer it, nothing could be answered? See, most of the time, the way we pray is we can solve our own prayers if Jesus doesn't come through. I want you to think about this for a minute. Many of us can solve our own prayers based on our bank account, based on our status, based on our abilities. Many times our prayers are so superficial that we pray in a way that if God doesn't come through, we can go ahead and solve them because we're scared to death to pray in a way that only Jesus can come through. When was the last time that we prayed and we had no ability whatsoever to make that prayer come to fruition? When was the last time that we prayed that if God didn't come through, we would have egg all over our face? We don't pray that way often because we're scared to. We're scared that if God doesn't show up, then everybody else is going to make fun of me or everybody else is going to think God isn't big enough. Listen, God doesn't need you to prove how awesome he is. God doesn't need to answer your prayers to prove how powerful he is. And see, what we do is we base uh, everybody else's perspective of God off of our own prayer life. And that's not how we need to be doing it. We need to come boldly to God because we expect from God. See, we don't expect God to answer prayers. We just hope God will answer prayers. We're not coming to him with expectation. This guy came to Jesus with expectation. He didn't come to Jesus with his fingers crossed, begging and hoping that God would hear him. No, he came to Jesus and said, listen, this is what's going on. I need you to move. You're the only one who can. And he left it there. We don't pray that way. We don't pray boldly. We don't pray in a way that comes to God with expectation saying, God, I know you can and I know you will and you're the only one who can. We don't do that because we're terrified too. Now look what, look what we see here. Look in verse 7. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Now, Jesus offers to come and heal the servant, but I want you to look here in verses 8 through 9, and we're going to look at three specific things that the centurion says. Look in verses 8 through 9. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. Good gracious, what a, what a verse. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So here, the centurion's response continues to reveal his heart and character. Look at the first thing here he says. Again, he calls him Lord. The centurion answered in him and said, Lord. He continues this surrendered mindset. He addresses Jesus' lordship, and he continues to show this, okay, you are the only one. You are the only one who can heal. He does this by addressing his Lord. Notice his second statement. I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. This centurion had the right socially and culturally to look down upon Jesus, even to demand of Jesus or face punishment. I want you to think about this. I mean, Rome was the power at this time. And this Roman centurion could have demanded of Jesus and said, Listen, 
I have a servant that is sick and paralyzed. I hear that you're a healer. You will come with me and you will heal my servant. He could have done that. But this centurion, again, the condition of his heart. See, what, what this, this story, this, there, there's so many caveats in this story. It's not just about a centurion who had a servant who was healed. This is about the condition of the heart in which we should come to Jesus. So often we either come to Jesus as timid or we come as arrogant. Very rarely do we find the middle ground. We're either so timid that we're terrified to come boldly and ask him anything, or we're so stupid arrogant that we come to him and we don't even recognize his lordship. You know, and and I'm not knocking this, but it just seems like we've turned prayer into a joke anymore. We don't pray to the God who spoke everything into nothing. We make prayer into something that's just, you know, this casualness. I'm talking to the God of the universe. And if he is for me, what do I have to fear? If he is for me, what do I have to worry about? There should be a level of boldness that I come in prayer that is just ridiculous. I shouldn't be timid. This man right here is showing us something significant, and we shouldn't overlook that. I mean, he could have told Jesus, you're going to face punishment if you don't come. But he was completely surrendered to him. But he was surrendered to him boldly. See, that's the thing. Surrender does not equal weakness. This man was not showing a level of weakness because he was surrendered to Jesus. This man was showing the strength and the boldness that he had in his faith to Jesus based on his surrender. That's where it's at. And then notice the last thing he says. For I also am a man under authority. Don't miss this. He is telling Jesus, I recognize that you are the authority. He says, I also, underline that word also, I also am a man under authority. See, he's not looking at Jesus and saying, listen, I'm a centurion, I'm a man of authority. He says, no, I recognize you're a man of authority. I recognize the power that you have. That is so significant. He recognizes, see, and this is what, this ties it together. He's not just calling him Lord for the sake of it. He's calling him Lord because he recognizes Jesus' authority. See, that word Lord, is the, it shows his authority. And so this man is not just kind of giving him the title of Lord simply for the fact that it sounds good. He's giving Jesus the title of Lord because he truly understands, respects the Lordship of Jesus and the authority of Jesus. So this centurion is showing us very significantly how the condition of our hearts should be when we come to Jesus. See, not only do we need to understand that this centurion is coming to Jesus for his servant. That's, that's all well and good, and that's, that's great. But we need to understand the condition of the heart of the centurion because that's where we can learn and say, this is how I need to come to Jesus. Look in verse 10. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. The word marveled means he was amazed. This centurion amazed Jesus. Now, I want you to think about that. 
I mean, could you imagine that you're sitting here and you're having a conversation with Jesus and Jesus is actually amazed at what you say? I mean, that would be, you know, you talk about something tweetable to be able to put on your Twitter account. Great. I, hey, guess what, guys? You won't believe this, but I had a conversation with Jesus and I amazed him. Man, I would tweet that all day long. I'd put it on my Facebook page. I'd put it on Instagram. I'd put it everywhere if I knew that I amazed Jesus. But that's not this guy's condition. And maybe that speaks to, you know, where I need to repent a little bit and say that, you know, I would gloat about that a little bit. But this guy, he amazed Jesus. And look, and said to those who followed. So this guy had a crowd. When he was talking to Jesus, and Jesus looked at the crowd, and notice what Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Not even among my own people. Here is a Gentile. Here's a guy who should have nothing to do with me, and his faith is greater than the people who have known that I've been coming for centuries. See, Jesus hadn't seen this kind of heart, this kind of faith, and this kind of person in his own homeland. In the people who had been hearing about him coming for years and centuries, the Old Testament had prophesied that Jesus was coming. Even his own people doubted that he was who he was. But here's this Roman, this centurion, this Gentile, and he was all in with Jesus. He was absolutely all in with Jesus. Now, Jesus is going to say something here in verses 11 and 12. And he says, I say unto you that many will come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I want you to listen to what Quarles says about this. He says, the kingdom of heaven is open to anyone who places their faith in Jesus. Believing, believing Gentiles will be equal to the great Jewish patriarchs. The sons are the Jews to whom the kingdom was originally promised, but who will be excluded because they have rejected Jesus. So what Jesus is doing here is he's given uh, this, this beautiful picture of how that the Gentiles will be grafted in because of their faith, because of how that they will believe on Jesus, and that there will be no differentiation between the Jewish patriarch's belief and the Gentiles' belief. It's not going to be like the Jews are above the Gentiles, but when the Gentiles are grafted in, there's equalness in the eyes of God. And those who were uh, the, the Jews who have been, uh, been taught the promise that the Messiah would come, they're the ones who rejected Jesus. And they're the ones who, because of rejecting Jesus, will... Um, be excluded, as as Quarrel says. They will uh, not be able to uh, experience heaven because they have rejected the, the Son of God. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's taking a very key moment to teach those around him about this faith that this Gentile is showing. And to say that this is the heart you need to come to me with. This is the mindset you need to come to me with. Not because I have, you know, this clout about myself. It's not that Jesus was walking around saying, you have to do this. What Jesus was saying is, listen, you need to recognize who I am. I am the Son of God. I am God incarnate. I am God in the flesh. And I am here, and you need to understand that. I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. It's not about, you know, playing religiosity. It's about a relationship with Jesus. Then look what Jesus said here in verse 13. 
Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Notice, notice what he said. As you have believed. Jesus said, I'm honoring your faith. I'm honoring your faith. And your faith is going to intercede on the behalf of your servant. And your servant will be healed. And his servant was healed that very same hour. Jesus didn't have to go to the servant in order for the servant to be healed. The servant was healed based on the centurion's faith. That is amazing. What Jesus is showing us here is why it's so important to come with the right heart and the right mindset. And to be able to come expecting Jesus is saying, get rid of your timidity. Understand who you're coming to. You're coming to the God who spoke everything into nothing and nothing had to surrender to it. You're talking to the God who created everything with a word. Don't come to me with a timid heart. Come to me with boldness. Come to me understanding that nothing is impossible with me. Come to me with faith. Now, I'm not saying that if you come to God in faith, that He's going to answer every prayer the way you want Him to. But here's the thing. Many, and I, I, I say it this way, and I hope you hear what I'm getting ready to say. I think the majority of the reason why many of us don't experience a wonderful prayer life is because we're too scared to pray the way we should. It's not that God can't answer, and it's not that God won't answer. It's that we never asked for it in the first place. What did James say? You have not because you ask not. Many of us are terrified. Here's the thing. Many of us are scared for Jesus. Let me explain. Many of us are scared for Jesus because what we do is we're terrified to pray big because we're scared that we're going to bring a black eye on Jesus if he doesn't answer our prayers. And we don't want to bring a black eye on Jesus. Can I tell you something? God is who he is, and my prayer life is not going to affect the glory of God. I'm, I'm showing a level of arrogance when I think that my prayer life will affect the character and the glory of God. I am showing a level of arrogance when I think that if God doesn't answer my prayer right, that everybody around me will think that my God is insignificant and insufficient. Because, see, it's not my job to prove the glory of God. It's not my job to prove the grandeur of God. It's my job to come humbly before God and pray boldly with expectation. That's the difference. And so the reason why many of us don't pray boldly is because we're scared to death to pray boldly because of that. But here's, here's the other thing. We're scared to pray boldly because we wonder what will happen if God actually says yes. I want you to think about that. Many of us are scared to pray because we're afraid, what if God actually says yes? What will that require of me? 
What will he make me do? Now, here's the extreme that we always go to. God's going to put me in the middle of a village in, in Africa with no running water and no electricity for the rest of my life. That's what we do. We go to the extreme, you know, and, and guess what? What if he does? What's so wrong with that? I've been blessed to go to a village in the middle of Africa with no running water and no electricity. And you know what? It was probably some of the most uh, rewarding spiritual uh, moments of my entire life. I can still remember some of those moments that I experienced with the different people in the village, and it, it, it done more for my spiritual life in those two weeks that I was over there than many of the, the uh, things that I've experienced here in the United States. See, what we've got to do is we've got to quit, we've got to quit being so satisfied with complacency. We've got to quit being so satisfied and being taken care of. See, what we do is we build our churches bigger. We build our churches more conditioned to take care of my needs. I'll tell you one of the things that I witnessed in Africa that absolutely blew my mind. I witnessed a situation to where we walked up to a building that may have been about 30 foot long. And it was made of cinder block. And when we got up, the pastor of the, the, the village there, he told us, he said, we've been working on this church for 20 years. We're making our own block and making our own cement, and we're laying the brick and the block as we have time and as we have the money to do these things. And hopefully in the next few years, our church will be done. I visited a church here in the state of Virginia to where the chandelier... From what I understand, they told me the chandelier, just one chandelier in the sanctuary cost $15,000. That is stupid. What we've done is we've created our own temples and we call them churches and we think that the bigger and the better and the more expensive I make it, the more that I show God how much I love Him. You know what I find? The majority of these churches that spend all their money making their buildings look beautiful do very little in impacting their community with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. They care more about their building than they do about the body. They care more about their building than they do about the lost souls that are out there dying and going to hell every day. And what we do is we want people to come look at our building and how wonderful it is. I went to another church to where the daggone stage changed with the color, uh, with colors based on the mood of the worship music that was being sung. How ignorant is that? How much money did you spend on something that is so stupid that you've got to change the color of the music or colors uh, of the stage based on the mood of the music? And there are people that's going to hell. I promise you, changing the colors on the stage with the mood of the music is not going to cause someone to see Jesus. What that is, is that is telling someone, look at me, look how much money I got, and look how awesome I am. That's not the heart that I see in the centurion. That's not surrendering to the lordship of Jesus. That's saying, look how awesome we are. We're, po we're pointing the finger at ourselves. This centurion is saying, my finger will stay pointed at Jesus, and that's all that matters. What we've got to do is we've got to change our priorities. We've got to change our heart and say, my heart needs to be focused on Jesus. My faith needs to be put on Jesus. I need to quit worrying about building my kingdom and making sure that I'm helping advance His because I'm obedient to what He wants me to do. That's the difference. And what we see here is this centurion didn't care about his kingdom. He didn't care about his position. He didn't care about being uh, his notoriety with Jesus. 
He didn't care about none of that. What he cared about was his servant. He cared about making sure he reached Jesus on behalf of his servant. We need to spend more time at the altar than we do on $15,000 chandeliers. I think that's the key that we find. So, I hope that this has encouraged you. I hope that this has challenged your heart and allowed you to be able to uh, get into the Scripture a little bit more. We're going to jump over next week to uh, Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 28. We're going to talk about the uh, demon possession here, and uh, we're going to look at when Jesus cast the demons out and put them into the swine and all of that that took place. It's going to be wonderful to dive into that scripture. I pray that this has encouraged you. And if it has, um, to be able to help this podcast get out there a little bit more, I encourage you, whatever platform you're listening on, please go and give it a five-star rating and give it a review. Uh, so that way, uh, it'll be able to get out there a little bit more. Share this with people on whatever social media platform you have. If it's been a blessing to you, that maybe it'll be a blessing to somebody else. And most importantly... If you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, I hope you understand that it's not about being good. It's about understanding that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All are in need of a Savior. Jesus came to die for all mankind, and He paid the sin debt on Calvary's cross. And if you don't understand what it means to be saved, I encourage you, find someone who you know is a Bible-believing, Jesus-following Christian, and ask them about it. Ask them to what it means to repent of your sins and ask Jesus to be Lord of your life. So that way you can begin this new life with Jesus. So I encourage you to do that. If you are a follower of Christ, I encourage you to go out, share the gospel with somebody today, and start praying boldly. Start coming to the throne boldly with expectations in your faith and in your prayer life. I hope you have a blessed day and a blessed week. We look forward to jumping back in next week as we get back into God's Word. And we pray that God blesses you mightily this week.